Welcome to the In Camera Review Podcast. We have a very good show for you tonight. We are lawyers talking about movies. Good evening, Mike. Tonight we will be discussing Sexy Beast from 2000 and zero, starring Ray Winstone and Ben Kingsley, directed by Jonathan Glazer. We will also be unpacking the career and movie catalog of Frances McDormand. You would know her from her Oscar-winning roles in Fargo and three billboards in Evan County, Missouri. And we will also be discussing the 2019 year in cinema, the 2020 Academy Award nominees and winner for Best Picture. The winner, of course, was the movie Parasite. And the other nine nominees include Ford versus Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This week, I was able to get in Sexy Beast on two occasions, and I was glad that I, re- that I rewatched it because saw some things second time around, didn't catch it the first time. Matt, good pick. Thanks, thanks for grabbing that one. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Do you remember when it came out on VHS and it was like a, a blue cassette tape? Like every other cassette tape was like black, and this was like a bright blue. Yeah. Yeah, never seen that before. Did you notice that when you were at Blockbuster? When I rented it and I took it out of the Blockbuster case, I was like, whoa, this this is a blue VHS, among other things. A lot of fun. What uh, what did you get? Did you get to rewatch Sexy Beast this week, Matt? I did. And I, I was able to crank out three billboards, which I had a lot of expectations, high expectations for, and slightly disappointed. Wow. We're going to get into it. Logan, what'd you watch this week, man? I watched Sexy Beast. I watched Three Billboards. I watched Filthy Rich, which was excellent, but also oh, yeah. fucking filthy. I watched Marriage Story. That was one of the ones in the best picture year I wanted to get in. And I also watched Silver Linings Playbook again. And I stand by my Your boy. I stand by my previous statements about Bradley Cooper, which we will get into on a future episode. I'm sure of it, but it was on either Prime or Netflix, and so clicking through, I had to give it another chance. Robert De Niro's the best thing in that movie. That was Robert De Niro's coming back. I don't think Irishman gets made if he's not in that movie. I agree. When we come back, we will be talking about Sexy Beast. Thanks and all that. Thanks for thinking of me. But I'm just going to have to turn this opportunity down. No, you're just going to have to turn this opportunity, yes. <laughs> I'm not exactly match fit. Seem all right to me. No, not really, Don. You look fine. I'm not. Do the job. What? Do the job. No, Don. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. I can't. You can. I can't. That can't. Don, don't do this. Do what? Look. What am I doing? This. This? This what? 2000 Sexy Beast, directed by Jonathan Glazer. And it is not the movie that has a Strangler song that came out in 2000 where people speak in Cockney rhyme slang, and it's a crime movie called Snatch. It is not that movie. It is a different movie. But clearly, there is a Capote slash infamous Wyatt Earp slash Tombstone type of situation, I think, that, that hurt this movie. But it's unfair because I think it's a very good movie. It's very well done. The the performances in this movie are very good. So first, this movie is, it stars Ben Kingsley. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this role. 
Ray Winstone, who you know from The Departed, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull more recently, and then Ian McShane, who is known for Deadwood and the John Wick films. This movie is about Gale, who's a retired British thief, criminal, living out his dream of suntanning, relaxing by the pool in his Spanish villa. He's married to the love of his life, a former adult film star, and they're enjoying the paradise until their tranquility is interrupted by a literal and figurative boulder that comes smashing into the villa. Literally, a gigantic rock sits at the bottom of Gale's pool, and figuratively, the unmovable object that is Ben Kingsley, who plays Don Logan, is sitting in the living room of the villa, not taking no for an answer, as we played in the clip, as to Gail coming out of retirement and doing another job. I think this is a very good movie. I think this is a good pick. I think that it's understated and a little not as well known as it should be. I think it's probably most well known for Ben Kingsley's standout performance. Very different than the last time he had not been nominated for an Oscar, which was Gandhi. Matt, tell us a little bit more about Sexy Beast. So Logan sent a text, which I thought was interesting. You know, he said, look, Matt, I, lo I love these these types of movies, these British crime, or I guess this is a caper, and I was bragging on capers last week. But, Logan, I think this is a little bit different, don't you think? I mean, you have to you have to take this one. It's not as sharp as, say, Snatch, Lock, Stock. It's not like a Guy Ritchie one. It's not even like Layer Cake in terms of everything is so suave and cool. It's... It's, he used to be suave and cool, and it's almost like a, an anti-snatch because they spend so much time on the Don Logan pressure, pressuring him to do the job. One thing I'll say here is this, is though there is much ado on Ben Kingsley's performance, and rightly so, the reason why this movie was so good when I rewatched it this week is Ray Winstone. His reaction to Kingsley at every turn is amazing. He's exhausted. I think he knows when he's told that he's showing up, I think he knows he's going to do the job. I think he knows that there's no way out of it. And one of the reasons I liked it is because we've, we've now been in our careers for almost 15 years, at least in the legal career. And, We've all come across supervisor managing personalities that are not going to take no for an answer. And the Ray Winstone reaction to him just doing that stupid nodding or when he says, listen, I missed my, I missed my flight and, and I'm going to be staying the night. You just see him look down and then he turns and says, of course, Don. But I mean, I mean, you can see the look on his face. He's great. The other thing is, is at the end, when Ian McShane kills his nemesis in front of gorgeous Gail, I think Gail thinks he's about to die, and rather than panic, he just kind of zones out. His reaction in this movie to both Ian McShane and Ben Kingsley is very normal, very much so like the three of us would maybe react under, under those circumstances. My hat's off to Ray Winstone as gorgeous Gail. And I give this movie, I give a caper five stars. To, I think I said last week you can't give a caper five stars, but I'm doing it. Logan, I'd like to know which, how you would compare and contrast this to Lockstock, which came out in 98, Snatch in 2000, and 2004's Layer Cake. They're kind of, they all have that snappy British Cockney rhyme slang dialogue. They're all kind of, you know, crime heist movies. How, how, how would you kind of rank them out? 
that's why I think they're so similar. And it's not just because of like you remember in Snatch, the the actual heist part is the first five minutes of the movie. And then the rest of the time is just the story about where the diamond is moving around and who's going to get it. And so uh, this is very similar. This is like the conflict of whether he's going to do the job. It's not really about the, the crime. But the thing I love about these British caper movies is that the dialogue is so good, but because we're not British, it takes us a long time to unpack it, to appreciate it. I had to watch Snatch like three times before I really appreciated that movie. It's in my top five. I love that movie. I love the movie Snatch. I think the dialogue is so sharp. I bet Guy Ritchie dumbed Snatch down for Americans compared to the other ones. A little bit, right? But like you have to watch Brad Pitt's character speak several times before you even know what he's saying. You look like a boxer. Kingsley's not that far off, right? He talks so fast in this movie that, like, when I went back to watch some of the scenes, the airplane scene is so fucking good. When mm. he's smoking the cigarette, and he basically, like, the guy tells him to put it out. He turns around. He's like, how about I put it out on your eye? Do we have a deal? And then the the stewardess comes back, and he's like, no, I'm not going to put it out. You must. What's that? If you don't, we can't take off. Well, that's your problem, isn't it? It's your move. <laughs> right? But it, it's so fast and so quick with the accent that you have to watch these movies like multiple times, in my opinion, to really appreciate how good they are. Between Snatch and Lockstock and this one, they're very, very similar. Just in the, the way the cadence and the discussions, the dialogue go. I think my favorite scene is the opening scene where he's laying in the sun and he's got the ice and the and the the washcloth and the songs playing, right? I was blown away right out of the gate. And then the rock comes down and he gets all wet, you know. And he's like, he doesn't really know what to do. Again, a facial reaction, right? Tone that is just amazing. I loved it. You know, it's going to be on my list of you know most favorite movies to rewatch because again, every time you watch them, you pick up a little bit more of the dialogue that you didn't get the first time because it's so fast and and there's so much slang in it. I would give it four stars. And uh, again, this is subject to me rewatching it in full again. But my only criticism of the movie, the only flaw, I think, is that it seems to be somewhat confused about where or what it's supposed to be. So the scenes with the, like, demonic rabbit. Yeah. Like, as in his dream and he has at the end, they don't really fit in the movie to me. They're just seem like the first watch for me just seemed kind of like disjointed at a, at a couple parts where they were trying to maybe do a little too much or they were like, Hey, we should maybe do this. And, and it made it into the movie and maybe it shouldn't have. So Jonathan Glazer, he, he's only directed three films, right? A lot of music videos. Right. He's a music video guy like like our friend David Fincher. And and he's done some good music videos, Radiohead and Jamiroquai. These are, you know, critically acclaimed music videos. He's done a lot of them. So Sexy Beast was his directorial debut. He did Birth in 2004, which was a really weird Nicole Kidman movie that was not The Others. I heard it's really weird. It's very weird. And then he does Under the Skin with uh, Scarlett Johansson, which is an A24 flick. That movie's amazing. 
I don't know if you guys. Is it really? It. It's amazing. It's one of the most original screenplays that I've seen in a decade. It's very well directed. I wish that he would go, that he would have made Sexy Beast after this because that he, he found his directorial style. And I think that's why, Logan, I agree with you. It's a four-star movie. And part of that is, is I think Glazer was confused about what story he wanted to tell and how he wanted to tell it. He does not have the slick Guy Ritchie style. He no. does not have the technical craftsman OCD style of David Fincher. He kind of waffles a little bit back and forth with the style. But having said that, to me, it's a very high four star because he knows enough to let Ben Kingsley and Ray Winstone just go. Right. Just throw that, throw that camera over each of their shoulder and let them go. And he does a really good job of doing that. To me, this movie also, I mean, the performances, I, I want to mention Ian McShane because he, the problem with him in this movie is there's not enough of them. Right. Um, there's a great scene with him at the restaurant where he just he leans over at the table and he's just staring at him and he is not buying Gail's story that Don Logan made it back to London okay. And this phone call he makes for me for, oh, tell me what he said again. Oh, Don, I told you. Tell me again. Logan, you mentioned something that I, I really found to be the strength of this movie, which is it's not a heist movie. It's not about the job. The job is really not central to the the plot of the movie. And you realize it's a 90 minute movie and 60 minutes in is when he starts the job. Right. Job doesn't last all the, the last 30 minutes. There's a lot of things going on about it. And so to me, I think it took, you know, the, the classic scenario of a heist movie of, you know, retired guy, you know, they try to get me out and pull me back in those, all that. Right. And they, he puts an original spin on it and it's, it's, it's told through really uh, good performances. I also, appreciated the really it's a deftly written screenplay that these characters breathe life into and there's a lot of symbolism in this movie that i didn't pick up the what i was mentioning the first time and second viewing is you know the boulder as i mentioned in the beginning there's a lot of symbolism there he talks about being out of shape he's a fat party boy and he just wants to be in the you know and he, he hates britain and so there's this dichotomy that's set up of who he used to be when he actually was, I think, a sexy beast back in the day. Right. And then now he's sort of overweight and just kind of a playboy, whereas in, like, the London circles, he'd be made fun of. He's now happy. You're no, not I went to jail for nine years. Right. And that's the thing is that he is he is celebrating his independence and not being in jail he comes out of the pool in the very first scene of the movie and he says, I think I've got the fucking bends. And then later on, this, the, the heist is involves scuba gear. It's a really well-written story. I don't think it all quite comes together to make it a perfect movie. But I think that, to me, it reminded me a lot of the way that I felt about The Usual Suspects because I loved it so much when it came out in the 90s. And then looking back on it and, and like us talking about it, I can see the flaws that you guys are talking about. But I just don't feel them because I love that movie. Right. Right. And so I feel like, I feel like maybe that's a little bit of, of this for you, Matt, is that this, this is just one of the, when I think of sexy beast, not figuratively for you, but I think about you in this movie, like I identify this as one of your films that is your go-to. Honestly, I think I like this more this time around than, than I did years ago. Some of the other stylistic choices they made, which I thought were really well done. The second he lands, in the UK, it is pissing rain on them, right? And and also, when he's in the sun in Spain, I feel like the camera 
they put a lens on it to kind of mimic how whenever we get the sun in our eyes and if you're out the sun for a long period of time where everything has like a little bit of a redder glow to it, that seemed to be the case for everything in, in Spain. And, and honestly, I think one of the most understated scenes in that whole movie is when they tell him Don Logan is coming when, when they're in the restaurant and he's, and he's just, he's talking to himself and he said, I love this restaurant, you know, I'm going to get the calamari. Like he, he's, he's so worked up. <laughs> what, you know, what chicken thing? What chicken thing? <laughs> oh, I'm going to have the calamari. I love calamari. Right. Great movie. I can see where you guys are, what you guys are talking about. Uh, the rabbit. I, I liked it. I just, I just did, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's, I could. it's not that I don't, it's not that I like hate it or don't like it. It's just, it confuses me and it doesn't seem to me, it doesn't seem to fit. Right. And so with, with the rest of the movie and they, you know, they throw it in there a couple of times. It just, I don't know. It just felt off to me. Like they, they weren't exactly sure what direction that they were headed. It's not like I'm like, oh, that, you know, that ruins the whole movie or, or anything like that. I, you know, I still love it. I, it's a dream sequence. I mean, I remember, because I don't think I watched this right when it came out, but I remember when I watched it and I saw that bunny with, with the machine gun being reminded of the end of Mulholland Drive when she's in the alley and she just sees that weird, like, caveman bomb. And I was like, fuck did that come from so this time around now that i'm more sophisticated i was like oh it's just them being fucking weird and it's fine and it doesn't matter and this isn't a, a guy Ritchie movie so it doesn't have to be that fucking sharp they can get weird it, that's the thing is that the demonic bunny is there in the beginning in his dream and then he shows up at the end to torture ben kingsley at the bottom of the pool at least in ray winstone's head that scene when you first see the demonic Bonnie is pretty fucking sweet though. Right. I, like, I actually like the, the dream sequence part, but the end, we all know that's where he's buried. Right. We know that you don't have to go down there and, and vi visit the bunny. And I, to me that, that took away from the ending a little bit, but I love, I loved it. Great pick. Great fucking pick. Great pick, Matt. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Francis McDormand and a couple of movies she's been in including Fargo. Father, just like those Crips and just like those Bloods, you're culpable because you joined the gang, man. I don't care if you never did shit, you never saw shit, you never heard shit. You joined the gang, you're culpable. And when a person is culpable to alter boy fucking or any kind of boy fucking, because I know you guys didn't really narrow that down. And you kind of forfeit the right to come into my house and say anything about me or my life or my daughter or my billboards. So why don't you just finish up your tea there, Father, and get the fuck out of my kitchen. Francis McDormand as Mildred in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. She won an Oscar for that for Best Actress in 2013. Uh, that was the second time she won Best Actress. The first time was for Fargo in 1996. I think that the starting point for a discussion of Frances McDormand has to be with the fact that it is not a happy accident that she is primarily known for her work in Coen Brothers films because she is married to Joel Cohen. And I think that probably has a lot to do with the fact that she's in their movies. Just, just a guess. 
But having said that, she is she is not just a Coen Brothers stand-in, and she's much like a lot of the players in the Coen Brothers movies. She is, in her own right, a star. She's done some some work with a lot of critically acclaimed directors, including Alan Parker, Cameron Crowe, Gus Van Sant, Wes Anderson, and Martin McDonough, who is the director of Three Billboards. She also is one of the very few people in the world who is what's known as a triple crown winner. She has won an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony. Not a lot of people can say that. So she's clearly just a very talented actress. But I want to start with her filmography, where it begins with 1984 and Blood Simple. That's a Coen Brothers movie. Plays a very, not necessarily big standout role for her. In 87, she really shows what I think defines I think kind of what she's known for and why she's so great in Fargo is that in 87, she does Raising Arizona, and she shows this comedy streak that she has. Then there's a diphtheria tetanus, what they call the diptet. you got to get them diptet boosters yearly or else it'll develop lockjaw and that vision. She's outstanding. But really, I think her coming out party actually was in not a Coen Brothers movie. It was in 1988, Mississippi Burning. That was an Alan Parker movie who directed Midnight Express, Angela's Ashes, and The Life of David Gale. She was he nom- also directed Pink Floyd's The Wall. That he did. She was nominated for her first Oscar for that movie for Best Supporting Actress. And then she won in 1996, a little under a decade later for Fargo. I think that's the moment where she clearly just becomes established. She has her coming out party. She's sort of known for the Coen Brothers movies. And then she's established in her own right. She gets a pretty good run after that. She does Primal Fear. She does Almost Famous with Cameron Crowe. She's nominated for another Best Supporting Actress in 2000. And then she's also nominated again for Best Supporting Actress in 2006 when she does North Country with Charlize Theron. She does Wonder Boys with Michael Douglas. We talked a lot about 2008's Burn After Reading. She's really good in that movie, even though that's not one of the best Coen Brothers movies. It's one of her better performances. She's just eccentric and funny and weird, and she does it well. And I see why she and Joel are a pair. In 2011, she won the Tony. In 2012, she worked with Wes Anderson and did Moonrise Kingdom. Gus Van Sant came along, and she did Promised Land with Matt Damon in 2012. In 2014, I think she really kind of starts to hit the second echelon of her career, she does this HBO limited miniseries called Olive Kitteridge. It's directed by the director of The Kids Are All Right. And she won an Emmy for her performance in that miniseries. I was reading a little bit about it, and apparently that's one of the reasons why she wanted to, she was attracted to the role of Mildred because she wanted to do a little bit more leading ladies. I think she's kind of known as a person that it's like if you have a movie and you're just looking for some somebody to support as a supporting role and it's not Philip Seymour Hoffman. Over the last 20 years, you pick, if it's a actress, you want her. She's just a solid supporting role. But I think really over the last five or six years, she's established herself as a leading lady. The thing for her, though, is she's she's prolific. She's got a well-rounded career. She can do just about anything. But she is not a box office seeking person. Agreed. Right? I mean, she, she goes after the projects that she wants to do. I'd be really interested to know what kind of biases she's faced as the wife of a famous director. And, or benefits. Or, or benefits, yeah. I mean, because it seems like in some ways she, she's not really well-respected. She's not seen as a Meryl Streep, as, an, uh, as a net Benning or that type. But Are you nuts? She's a two-time Best Actress Academy Award winner. You don't think she's more respected than Annette Benning? You just love Annette Benning, Mike. We have to unpack this. You love Annette Benning a lot, and you 
I think you perceive her in a greater capacity than the rest of the country does. I think Tony Soprano would agree with me. I thought that was you. (laughs) Well, okay, but see, but that's what I'm saying is, is that her, the role she's getting now are roles that she wasn't getting before. Even though she won an Academy Award for Best Actress in 96, she doesn't become a leading lady until late into the into the 2010 decade. So uh, that's what I was going to say. So if if you watch any of the interviews of her about Mildred, playing Mildred in Three Billboards, she talks about being a leading lady and the leading protagonist and how much she enjoyed it. And she says, at least in the interview I watched, I've never done this in my career and I'm really sad because I loved it and I can't wait to do more of it. And so she, I think, really took to the role for Three Billboards and maybe it's she wasn't a leading lady because she just wasn't searching out those parts, right? She was having a confidence issue. I mean, she's been part of ensembles it's not a coincidence that she's been in some of those movies because she is married to a cone but you know there's some history there there was a crew before they got married and that crew consisted of the cohen brothers sam raimi holly hunter and francis mcdormand were roommates when they started when she started dating um which cone is she married to Joel. yeah so you know they were doing tv and all sorts of other things as young actors, and they had kind of a click, just like we discussed um, the Gyllenhaals and Sarsgaard and in that. So I mean, they're they're a professional click, and you know, it seems like they've been comfortable over the years in being in movies that are more ensemble, where there is no protagonist, and maybe she was just questioning her choices rather than Hollywood not giving her any of these roles. I mean, once you win that first Academy Award, she could have been fucking Catwoman after that, right? I mean, she could have been anything she wanted to because she won that Academy Award. I just don't think she took those roles until Martin McDonough and Three Billboards. And it was a perfect fit. It was a perfect fit. So there's a couple different things that are going on in her career that are difficult to understand what are the primary sort of pushers or or the combination of pushers. So clearly she's not taking roles because she wants to make a lot of money through box office. You know, she, that, that's, that's not her goal. So she doesn't take Catwoman because she doesn't need to be in the DC or Marvel universe. She doesn't need that, that paycheck. She's fortunate, right? I mean, a lot of, we've, we've talked about Wahlberg and a lot of, and Gyllenhaal, these guys are making bank and they, that's what they're doing. Um, right. Also, she either was not seeking leading lady roles or wasn't being offered leading lady roles for a long time, despite the fact that she had an Oscar on her shelf for being a leading lady. I would note that that was her, that that role was in a Coen Brothers movie. And I don't think that she was necessarily taken seriously as being able to do anything outside of that quirky arena. You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm going to barf. That maybe people didn't see her as somebody as well-rounded as she actually is. Or the fact that it's just, hey, you make decisions in your marriage about what you're going to do. And when you're in industry... You know, you make those compromises and have those different discussions. And I do find it interesting that Joel Cohen's latest project is his first solo directing project. Ethan right. is not involved. And 
Francis is going to star. In Macbeth? In Macbeth. Do you, do you see who Macbeth is? Who's Macbeth? Denzel Washington. What I like about our podcast is uh, whether we're full of shit or not, I like how we compare it to actual regular careers and regular lifestyles because they are just people. And you're right. You do make compromises in marriages. And if you have a husband that's, you know, making bank on his movies with his brother, you don't have to do fucking Transformers part three. But, you know, Mark Wahlberg, who's got to fucking pay the bills, might have to do Transformers Part 3 because he just started uh, uh, being a producer and it costs a lot more money. And, you know, I mean, this, this is real-life stuff. This is a real-life decision. So. He's got to support his brother with the hamburger chains, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> so, wait, what's that called? Is the Boston Burgers? What's that the called? Wahlburgers. The Wahlburgers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you didn't like Three Billboards, Matt? You know what, Logan? I told you guys this before i was really excited about this movie i love the mcdonough brothers i really do so either this was disappointing because i i put it on a, a pedestal and i waited too long or and what this is what i think it is i think this movie would have worked a lot better if it was in britain i think that these guys write sharp witty dialogue and it just did not translate to central missouri I thought Francis McDormand was great. I can, that performance should have won the Academy Award. I love Sam Rockwell. I love Woody Harrelson. Those guys have worked with Mark McDonough on Seven Psychopaths. I watched Sam Rockwell's speech when he won the Academy Award. I'm, uh, I'm glad that he won. He, he dedicated it to his buddy Phil Hoffman, which, you know, we love. But I didn't like his character in it. I thought that he was too much of a imbecile to have that kind of uh redemption. Correct. Thank you, Mike. And the first 45 minutes of the movie is very over the top in terms of even the, even the clip you just played after calling out people for being racist, calling out people for being sexist. And then, you know, there has to be a priest all of a sudden in her fucking house. I mean, give me a fucking break. I mean, she, it was just, the McDonough's going to town on, on everything that they can call out and they're beating you over the head. And then what happens at the end? Then they get cute and don't solve the crime, right? If you're going to be over the top with everything, close it, okay? Either be subtle and leave things up to um, the viewer to make a, a judgment call on and leave it open at, at the end or keep beating us over the head and then solve the murder and move on. So you were you were unsatisfied with that with that ending, when it's when he does good right and then and it and it ends up not being the the guy right. No 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 not not true that that could have worked if the first half of it was a little bit more subtle. So I, I'm not saying like oh I wish they got him because I really want to know who did it. I, I'm just I, I'm just saying like stylistically. Just like you guys were dinging Glazer on not maybe having a clear vision of it, I don't think Mark McDonough had a clear vision on, uh, uh, of this. It, that's my opinion on it. Matt, you didn't like the scene where she comes into the police station and Rockwell's sitting there with his feet up? Hey, fuckhead! What? Fuck say what? Dixon, when she comes in calling you a fuckhead? And don't you Shut come up! in here... Every I loved time I watch that scene, I almost pee my pants because that other police officer is so – because he gets so excited. 
And then she walks over and he's like, what can I do for you, Mrs. Hayes? Like, Rockwell's just, he's fantastic. Let me not call an officer of law a fucking prick in his own station house, Mrs. Hayes. Or anywhere, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That scene, there's just some great scenes, in my opinion, between some of the main characters that made me really, really enjoy the movie. I, you know, I... Oh. I still, I don't give it. I give it three and a half, four stars. It's not a five star movie for me, but I, I do really, really enjoy it. And I think that trailer was like Medellin for me, though. I watched that trailer like a hundred times. <laughs> I, I thought that movie was going to be a five star, five and a half. When we come back on the other side of the break, we will be talking about Parasite <laughs> and the other movies that did not win. This cocksucker shows up at a meeting 15 minutes late, wearing fucking shorts. Go wear shorts to a meeting. Nobody. That's right. Nobody. I'm not showing appreciation. It's not me. According to some people. No, no, it's not you. Some people. Some people say I'm not showing appreciation. Well, then fuck that. I'm trying to help you, Jim. I know you. But nobody threatens often. Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa and Joe Pesci as the Russell Buffalino. Those guys were both nominated in 2020 for their performances in Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. That did not take home the best picture that year. In fact, didn't take home any. Got nominated for a lot, but it didn't take home any, any gold that year. What did take home a lot of gold was the movie Parasite. Took home best picture, best original screenplay, best director for... Bong Joon-ho, and a lot of good movies, a lot of critically acclaimed movies came out that year. Ford vs. Ferrari, which is directed by James Mangold, The Irishman, which we mentioned, Jojo Rabbit, directed by Taika Waititi, Joker, which is directed by Todd Phillips, That was he was nominated for Best Director, and of course, Joaquin won Best Actor for that role. Little Women, which is directed by Greta Gerwig. Matt, do you remember Greta Gerwig in the role in the Ty West movie, The House of the Devil? She was the friend of the protagonist. I did not know that it was her. That's her, yeah. To, man. She's part of that little mumblecore movement, Noah Baumbach and those folks. Marriage Story, which is directed by Noah Baumbach. Scar Joe was nominated and Adam Driver was nominated for, for Best Actor. 1917, World War One picture directed by Sam Mendes. He was nominated for Best Director. And of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino, who is nominated for Best Director, but still has not won Best Director Oscar. And of course, Leo was nominated for Best Actor, and Brad Pitt was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Which he won. And he won it. He thanked Leo and said, I will ride your coattails anytime, brother. (laughs) 2019 in film was very much a kid's year and a box office year. I think this is basically all of the movies that are not kids' movies or big box office superhero movies were nominated. And then all the rest of the movies. So we had Endgame, which is the highest grossing film in history now. The remake of The Lion King. Frozen 2, Toy Story 4, Lego Movie 2, Captain Marvel, Dumbo, Men in Black 4, Spider-Man, Homecoming, Midsommar, that was a good one. It's Chapter 2, The Goldfinch, Zombieland, Double Tap, of course, The Lighthouse, one of my favorite movies. Terminator 6, I mean, this is kind of like looking at Back to the Future uh, movies, like Terminator 6, 
Demolition Man 7, Motherless Brooklyn, Knives Out, The Two Popes, Richard Jewell, and Uncut Gems. It's a it's an interesting year. There are two other movies that you didn't mention that I think some people got nominated. I know Charlie Theron got nominated for Bombshell, which is about Fox News um, and sort of the Me Too movement, um, which I watched. It's um, it's an interesting look. At, you know, not a story that I had paid a whole lot of attention to, but um, interesting. And then Hustlers with Jennifer Lopez, and that was like a big story when the when the nominations came out is that J-Lo didn't get nominated for her performance in Hustlers, which is about a bunch of strippers who rob Wall Street people. Um, but, scandalous. Yeah, a little scandalous. Um, when Jennifer Lopez and, and Cardi B, who was a stripper, are teaching the young Asian stripper how to dance on the pole. Uh, I actually watched it on an airplane, which is not the place to watch it because there's some fairly uncomfortable scenes if people are looking over your shoulder. What if you don't have muscles to do that? You have muscles to do this. I don't have. Every girl has muscles to do this. Logan, tell us a little bit more about these nominees and, and if, whether you think the Academy got it right. Uh, this is what I said when I watched Parasite because I, I think I texted you guys and it's the first foreign language film to win Best Picture. It's in subtitles. And based on the subtitles alone, I believe that the script is, how do they say it in Goodwill Hunting? Frankly, I found the class, you know, rather uh, elementary. Um, <laughs> it is very basic from a dialogue standpoint. And I'm going to chalk that up to the translation, that it's not coming over in perfect translation. It's almost like if you put in in English in Google Translate and you say translate to Spanish, if you say those words, they know that you're using Google Translate, right? Like there's something lost in the translation there. I can't wait for you guys to watch Parasite, having said all that, because it's an interesting movie. It de It definitely kept my attention. To me, it has a very much the feel of Match Point, which we talked about last week in the way the story progresses and then you have this big reveal type scenes at the end and it, it doesn't quite go the way you think it's going to go. This is still my take. I, I think Tarantino should have won for once upon a time in Hollywood and got his best picture. Cause I think that was the best movie of the, of the whole lot. It's not Tarantino's best movie, but I, I think it was good enough to win in this year there are a lot of like really solid movies on this list, but I don't think there's any five-star movies on the list. Oh, really? Really. Because I've watched everything but Little Women. All the movies are good. They're very enjoyable. It's a solid lineup. Parasite's very good. Once what, about what about Marriage Story? You didn't think that was a five-star movie? I didn't. I, it's a very good movie. Ray Theota blew me away with his sort of cameo appearance in it. I thought he was uh, excellent. It's almost like a comeback for him. I think he's got other stuff that he's doing as a result of that. Adam Driver and ScarJo are fantastic. It's a good, solid movie. And Mike, I know you watched it. I just, there's no five-star movies in there. We've talked at length about The Irishman after we all watched it. And I think we all agree that it was not a five-star movie. And Agreed. it's not Corsese's best movie. You know what that is. No, no, I don't know. You said it. <laughs> One of the things I would say about this um, this lineup is I think that 
that's a fair assessment to say that it's not quite five-star all around, especially when we talk about some other years that we've done on this podcast. But there are some really great performances, and I feel like it was like all the directors were paired with their correct actors, you know, for the best results. So you had Pacino and Pesci and De Niro with Scorsese. You had Leo and Pitt with Quentin Tarantino. I was very impressed with Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, and that's not not a surprise with Noah Baumbach. That's his area with uh, family relationships. I really enjoyed Marriage Story. I think there's a couple, you know, it's a cycle. There's there's movies that are about divorce and family. You know, they're they're usually not good. There was a really shitty movie called The Story of Us with Michelle Pfeiffer and Bruce Willis that came out yep. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not good. I think Rob Reiner might have done that film. And then there's a, a Intolerable Cruelty, which is kind of about divorce and divorce lawyers. The, the last thing I was going to say about Parasite, I have not had a chance to see it, but I... I noticed Bong Joon-ho in 2006 when he did a horror movie called The Host. And when I saw that, I was blown away. I thought, this is great. This guy's got chops. This is, this is some very innovative stuff he's doing with horror movies. I thought I, and, but I had the same feeling, which was the subtitles were almost a distraction because what I was seeing on screen was so compelling and not really matched by that. So I, I think there's probably something to that. I will say that. I, it wouldn't shock me if Parasite and The Host are basically on par as being about similarly good movies. It's just that this one happened to get noticed, and it's 2020 and not 2006, and that was a right. horror movie. But Snowpiercer uh, was fucking good shit, man. I mean, like I I fell in to Snowpiercer. I think I was like hungover one day and was like, huh? Some guys like fighting on a train. Check this out. And I was like, what is this? Does Parasite win in a different year? Obviously, there was a lot of pressure on the Academy for the diversity issues and stuff like that 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 we're going through, and cl- clearly we're still going through right now. And, and maybe they picked – this was the year, right, that there was a bunch of movies that were good but not great, and and they gave it to them. And maybe there's something lost in translation. I don't think it's a five-star movie. I would put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood – and Ford and Ferrari above it because Bale just elevates that movie to a different level. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about next week's picks. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have... Negative thoughts. Is this a joke to you? Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? We're going to watch one of the best picture nominees from this week, which is Joker. Mostly because I'm going to force Matt to watch it. Ouch. Ouch. I can go my whole life without seeing that movie. <laughs> Matt, tell us what actor we're going to discuss next week. You know what? This Macbeth thing has piqued my interest. Uh, we're going to go Denzel Washington. Oh, yeah. You think you could do this to me? For the best picture year, it will be the 1995 Academy Awards and the 1994 year in cinema. Forrest Gump was the winner. Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption quiz show and four weddings and a funeral 
this is, of course, also in a year where this is pre-10 nominees, so there are only five for us to discuss. So that is what we will be talking about next week. Although I probably will be picking a net betting sometime soon. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> you pronounce it Scorsese or, Sc- or Scorsese? I think it depends on my mood. Sometimes I'm feeling very uh, Scorsese about it, and sometimes I'm feeling very Scorsese. Mm. How do you pronounce it? I generally go Scorsese, but when when they when they thank him when they win Academy Awards, uh, I, I noticed when Leo said the great Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. You, what are you, Logan? You're Scorsese or Scorsese? Scorsese. Uh, yeah, that's interesting that you brought that up because uh, I always thought it was Scorsese. Pronounce your last name for me. Uh, Scorsese. Sassy. And I said Sassy, but I wanted to make sure. (laughs) All right. We are lawyers talking about movies, and we will see you next week on the In Camera Review Podcast. Good night.